You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Paradise and what the Bible has to say about it. Well, we need to begin with some definitions, really, first of all, because If you talk about paradise, according to Collins' English Dictionary, there are at least uh, six possibilities for what this might mean. So we've got heaven, the uh, ultimate state of the righteous, so says Collins. We've got a sensual garden of delights after death. Come back to that one. Intermediate state of the just. Place or condition giving all desires. Park for keeping foreign animals. Sorry, the numbering has gone awry. That's number five. And finally, the Garden of Eden um, before first sin. So those are the options that uh, Collins presents us with. But of course, the only ones we're interested with uh, are those that have some sort of basis in what the, the Bible has to say. So let's just have a look at those in order. So is, first of all, um, paradise... Uh, a a description of heaven, the ultimate state of the righteous. Well, certainly most Christian-based denominations would believe that was to be the case, but I have to tell you, Christadelphians don't believe that the Bible teaches that, and we'll we'll see why shortly. Uh, They teach something rather different, as the scriptures do. Uh, So then, what about this idea of paradise being a sensual garden of delights? Apparently, this is something that the uh, Quran uh, teaches, But um, that's not an idea that appears in scripture, although the idea of a garden, uh, interestingly, is relevant, and we shall come back to that. What about this third idea that uh, one Christian denomination in particular preaches, that uh, uh, paradise is an intermediate state of the just limbo, where uh, the souls of dead and departed people await some further action on the part of God? Well, nothing about that in the pages of scripture. Or is paradise simply a place or a condition that fulfills all desires? And certainly that's the colloquial sense in which uh, men and women use that expression today. This is paradise, but uh, usually it's an idea that's indulged uh, in a rather selfish uh, way, certainly not the sort of sense that scripture would uh, give to the idea. What about this one? Is is paradise a place for for keeping um, foreign animals? Well, again, the idea of a park and maybe some animals there is something that has some basis in scripture, although that's certainly not the the focus of Bible teaching concerning paradise. Well, finally, and now we're getting somewhere, is paradise the Garden of Eden, the place and state of happiness enjoyed by Adam and Eve um, on earth before first sin entered and everything was spoiled. Well, um, that, of course, is the answer, isn't it? According to the Bible, this last definition is the only one that completely accords with what the Bible has to say about paradise. And it describes a, a physical place that once existed upon earth, but which was lost because of man's disobedience to the laws of God, which we read about briefly Um, And so that paradise was lost. And so the outcome of this afternoon's study will be to show that 
Uh, firstly, what all there was historically uh, on earth, a place that was called paradise that did um, physically exist at one time. And even more importantly, God has promised that he's going to restore uh, paradise conditions to the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom. Well, I could sit down there and finish, but I think you probably want me to say a bit more than that. So let's have a look then at um, some of the original Old Testament words in the Bible that are translated from the original languages, mostly um, Hebrew and, and some Greek translations into English and see what insights they might uh, provide for us. So um, first of all, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, uh, translates this word paradise with this word paradisos. Uh, but interestingly, that's drawn from a, a root word which has Armenian or Persian roots, uh, pardis, and, and both the Greek language and the Hebrew language have borrowed that. And that's quite interesting, really. And the, the core meaning of the expression uh, is a fine park in the grounds of the ritual noble. That was the that was the core uh, explanation of the meaning that was adopted into other languages. Here's now some examples from the Bible of the use uh, of the um, of that word. So we read in the book of Nehemiah about a letter that was written to Asaph, the keeper of the forest, and that word forest is actually paradise. So um, Asaph kept the paradise. Uh, we also read about Solomon in Ecclesiastes, who explains that he made uh, for himself gardens and orchards. And again, that word orchards is the word translated elsewhere as paradise. Uh, if we look at the um, Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, we read about the Lord God planting a paradise, a garden in Eden. That's what we looked at earlier from Genesis 2. And that expression is used in the same way um, another dozen times in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So all of these uses of the word paradise, um, whether from the original Hebrew or, or Greek translations of the Bible, all carry this idea of connect, being connected with a garden, a park, an orchard, or a forest, because the whole idea of the Garden of Eden began somewhere in the Middle East, nobody knows exactly where, where God originally established his paradise, the Garden of Eden. And from that initial idea, in that region, this idea uh, came to describe a park, a garden and the like. So come with me, if you would, to uh, the scriptures. Genesis, please, in chapter one. Uh, well, actually, we'll go to the end of that uh, chapter in a minute. But, but the first chapter of Genesis basically describes how God fashioned our world, um, giving it to a, an atmosphere and, and water and land and so forth, which the Lord God then went on to populate with um, animals and, and finally with people. And having done that, as we... We read through our presidents, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. God looked back on all of his handiwork and saw that it was very good. That means that the conditions there were perfect. The whole thing was wonderful. But then we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8 about this um, paradise that God, and, uh, that God planted there. I think the words are fresh enough for us not to read again. So... 
the, the elements of this were in this garden of paradise uh, where the man and the woman were placed to look after it and keep it and generate a care for themselves. It was a garden that was planted by God. Um, there were trees there, which were both for beauty and for the provision of plentiful food. We also saw when we read that passage that at the midst of the garden, there was both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, two trees obviously we don't, we don't see today, that a river flowed from the garden, which divided um, eventually into four different rivers. And for those in the hall, here are the three suggested locations of where the Garden of Eden might have been, but, but nobody, nobody really knows. So from the garden, it divided into four rivers, so there was the Pishon or the Pison and Havilah, which are no longer known today. And then there was the River Tigris and the River Euphrates, which, are, of course, are um, still known today. But the problem is that what the Bible goes on to tell us in chapter three, that was that this beautiful paradise uh, that God had created was quickly lost to the man and the woman um, by reason of them breaking the single rule that God gave to them. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you do, well, it's curtains for you. It's um, You're going to start to die from that point on, and that will be the end. So they were thrown out of the garden. Everything became hard for them, so that human sin led to uh, paradise being lost. So what had been a perfect and enduring environment, so far as God was concerned, um, became a world that we now know full of sin and death and violence and war and all of the other horrible things we read about in the news today, all because man chose to disobey God's rule and choose his own way. And yet in spite of the curse that was placed upon the earth um, by reason of these things, we we look around us, don't we, in the world, and we still get uh, momentary glimpses of just how wonderful um, this world can be, even with the curse that uh, mankind has brought upon it, and perhaps a glimpse, therefore, of what one day will be again. But God, in his love for the people he created, even as he judged Adam and Eve, and we read about this in chapter three, nonetheless gave to them a promise that there would one day be a descendant from Adam and Eve who would eventually come and heal the rift between God and man that had led to the state of affairs in life we now understand. And at that point, the expectation was uh, that the paradise that once existed on earth, the conditions of that paradise, would be restored to the earth. And over many centuries and the events we read of in scripture, we eventually find that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who was to make this reconciliation with God possible. He himself uniquely committed no sins, but was asked by God to give his life in sacrifice to atone for the sins of all others. Now, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did in his initial uh, work coming to this earth. But being undeserving of death, um, God uh, raised him from the dead and uh, he ascended to heaven shortly after that. He was given all authority in heaven and on the earth in the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to have it um, until the time when he comes back to set up the kingdom of God on earth, a new paradise, and um, raise others from the dead too. So 
So, so that's a kind of two minute nutshell of what's in the purpose of God. And so now Jesus, our high priest, is in heaven interceding with God. And we're waiting the time when he's going to come back to the earth to judge the uh, dead as well as the living and um, to uh, remove at that time then all traces of sin from the earth and set up the new paradise in which men and women will live. So that, that's the kind of snapshot of the purpose of God um, with the kingdom of God on earth when Jesus returns. So I think from that very simple and, and speedy overview of the Bible, we, we can understand why men and women who've known something about God have always looked forward to this time when God would return to the earth, the conditions of paradise uh, that were once to be found here. And it may be that King Solomon um, had this thought in mind um, when he used his wealth and the wisdom that God had given him in order to build um, spectacular parks and gardens and orchards. He could sense that the time was going to come when things needed to be returned to the conditions that existed before. And he was reaching after these things. But until the problem of sin had been dealt with by the appearing and sacrifice of Jesus, then that was no, not going to be possible. But as the scriptures go on, we get more um, pictures, rather shadowy pictures at times, uh, of what's going to happen in the future when God uh, does these things. And, and amongst these, there's uh, a picture by the prophet Ezekiel that we're going to have a look at. You might like to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, please. Um, because what was gradually revealed over time is that the, the cost of bringing about this reconciliation with God and the return of paradise conditions to the earth was going to involve the terrible sacrifice of, of God's only son. So let's have a look at Ezekiel chapter 36, please. Um, I'm going to read a few verses for you. Now, this doesn't talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, but it, it again gives us another little cameo picture of what God was doing. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24 So this is God talking to the people of Israel, who, in a sense, are representative of the bigger picture. Verse 24, God says to Israel, who've been very sinful and punished by him as a result, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your, all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'm, I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Verse 29, I will deliver you from all your unclean, uh, from all your, uh, sorry, it's just my eyesight, all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways.
and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and for your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that he was in the sight of all who passed by. That they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, the paradise, and the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. This was the purpose. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted uh, that which was desolate, I am the Lord, I have spoken it and um, I will do it. So what's going on here? First of all, in verse 24, God says he's going to gather his own scattered people um, into their land. Uh, this was in Israel initially in context, but there's a wider picture going on here of what God intends to do with the earth. And But then he's going to introduce a massive and permanent change within his people. So first of all, they're going to be cleansed, verse 25, from their former idolatry, their defilement, their sins. In verse 26, they're going to be given a new heart. And in the scripture, the heart always represents the core of a person. They've been self-centered and they needed to become God-centered. Uh, they were to be given by God a new spirit, which in verse 27, with God's spirit, and notice that component, that would cause them to keep God's laws as they had never been able to do so before. And as a result of that, they would live uh, in fellowship with God in the land of promise. And through their repentance and deliverance in verse 29, the land, verse 30, would again been made fruitful. And so at God's command, verse 36, the land that was once barren, the land that was once blighted by the sins of men would again become fruitful and indeed as fruitful as the Garden of Eden, the paradise. So the paradise that was um, lost through sin was going to be restored for all to see, uh, including the other nations of the world. Now, although that, that's a cameo picture, really, of what God's plan was all about, it's a, it's a bit shadowy. It's not uh, a distinct and plain set of teachings as we might like to see it. It gives a very clear picture of how God has planned and will eventually bring to pass a reconciliation that will endure between himself and his people, and it will result in paradise conditions being restored to the earth. Man can't do that, he's incapable of it because of sin, but God's love and God's grace, God's works will bring that about. So all of that, it gives us really the Old Testament background to what the paradise is about, what it was, how it was lost, and how eventually God has promised he's going to put things straight again. Having said all of that, I can now bring you to the New Testament and some of the problem passages. Well, you turn to Luke chapter 23, because 
the verses we read in Luke chapter 23 um, provide an explanation of why so many Christian people today um, insist that paradise uh, will not be effectively the, the reinstallation of the uh, Garden of Eden conditions on the earth. They think that when people die, they will go to heaven and there God will bless them and reward them for uh, for their service of him. So Luke chapter 23, please. And when we're going to go in at verse 20, verse 39, sorry, Luke 23 and verse 39. And these are some words being spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of his crucifixion to one of the criminals who was crucified with him. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged with the Lord Jesus crucified railed at him, saying, Are you not the oh, son of God? In verse 30. No, it is verse 39. Apologies. I'm not sure whether I'm better with or without respect. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, two criminals crucified with him. The other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So try to picture the scene that's going on here. Um, three men have been impaled upon crosses by Roman soldiers for their supposed crimes against the Roman Empire. Two of them are entirely guilty as charged. One of them is completely innocent. He is Jesus Christ, the promised descendant of Adam and Eve, indeed the very Son of God, who in these moments of anguish and agony on the cross is fulfilling the purpose of God by bearing the sins of all the world. Now, those who knew the Lord Jesus Christ and had heard him teach didn't at this point in time, as they saw their Lord being crucified, understand what was happening. So it's in this supreme act of love by the Son of God, he had no comfort or encouragement whatsoever from those who had been a support and encouragement to him hitherto. Nobody understood what he was doing or why. And then at perhaps his lowest point, as we've just read, um, one of the criminals crucified with him begins to rail on him as well. You, you're supposed to be the son of God. If so, save yourself and save us in the process. And it is that provocation which produces an amazing reaction from the other criminal being crucified with him. And in the process, it ends up producing wonderful um, re-encouragement for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this other criminal, he says words like this, speaking to his fellow, don't, don't you fear God? You know, since, since we're in this condemnation of death, you're going to die, as am I, as is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for you and I, 
speaking to his fellow criminal, these charges, this punishment is entirely just. But this man, Jesus Christ, has done nothing amiss. And then turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, to restore the paradise that was lost. So when nobody else on the face of the planet understood what Jesus Christ was accomplishing through his sacrifice, this condemned man spoke words that must have absolutely buoyed up the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering and filled him with joy. Now, consider the, the roundedness of the faith this man actually expresses. This was his statement of faith. Jesus, he said, was sinless. This man has done nothing wrong. The criminal himself, however, was indeed a, uh, a sinner who deserved death. We're receiving the results of what we did. He recognized that Jesus would rise from the dead when you come. So Jesus was going to do something later and that Jesus would come again with a kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom and that at his coming, Jesus would raise the dead. So remember me. Uh, so there was going to be a judgment where Jesus would remember all men and deal with them according to their sins. Now, when, when you stand back and look at what that um, condemned man said, this is clearly not, not the last ditch confession uh, of a man who's going to die. This is These are the words of someone who must, at some point in his life, have seen and listened to the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and finally, in the tragic circumstances of his death, he becomes the first man in the world to realise and understand what it is that Jesus Christ was doing. Therefore, it seems very likely, doesn't it, that at one point this man must have been a follower of Jesus Christ. How else could he possibly have pieced it all together? There was a time when Jesus um, had a, performed a, a great miracle and the people wanted to take him by force and make him king. They were looking for someone to throw off the Roman rulers from their land. But Jesus refused to be made king at that time. And worse still, he began to say very strange things about the need for him to die. And then after three days to, to rise again. And, and so this man may have been one of the nationalists who was utterly disappointed and deserted Jesus, trying to get rid of the Romans another way through their own local terrorism, only to be captured along with Barabbas, who may well have been one of the leaders of that group, uh, and, and now to be crucified um, along with his compatriot and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet now, in the dreadful circumstances of being crucified next to Jesus, suddenly everything made sense and the full import of what Jesus, the Son of God, the promised descendant of Adam and Eve was doing, finally came together. He really was dying for the sins of the world. He really was the Son of God. He really was going to return to the earth with a kingdom. Although he doesn't specifically say it in these words here, he really was going to uh, set up the paradise again. So this freshly, perhaps reconverted disciple says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ 
being, I'm sure, greatly uplifted uh, by, by that declaration of faith that was being made, said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, because the Lord Jesus Christ appears to be saying to the, uh, to the crucified man, you will be with me today in paradise, um, as we've already seen, many people thought that Jesus was going to die, go to heaven, take this uh, condemned man with him. And so he would be with Jesus in a heavenly paradise. And it, that kind of sounds OK if you just read the passage um, in isolation. But when you stand back and think about the things we've already looked at, about the paradise actually being the Garden of Eden, which is going to be restored one day, uh, when Jesus, the promised descendant, comes back and gives men eternal life in that paradise, it, it doesn't actually sit well in, in, in the same way. So look also at some of these other points from uh, the Bible where um, John, this is writing after Jesus has uh, uh, been risen from the dead. Um, no one has ascended into heaven no man or woman, except Jesus, he, he did go to heaven. Um, so if that's the case, how could the thief go to heaven if no one's ascended to heaven? Uh, likewise, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 34, um, Peter says that not even David, the man complimented in scripture as being after God's own heart, has ascended to the heavens. Ooh, but why is that? Well, because the hope of David was to awake one day with the likeness of God when he was uh, uh, raised from the dead. You think about it, the great lie of the serpent back in the Garden of Eden was when he said to uh, Eve, well, you know, if you eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't really die. But the serpent was wrong. Uh, that was true for all men and women. In the day you disobey my law, you will be punished with death. Not you're going to die, but actually don't worry too much because I'm immediately going to transfer you to a better place where everything will be fine and dandy. Furthermore, we're entitled to ask the question, where did Jesus actually go on, on the day when he died? Um, certainly not to a paradise in heaven, uh, because three days after um, this was when Jesus had been raised from the dead, he appeared to Mary in John chapter 20 and verse 17 and said, do not cling to me for I'm not yet ascended to my father. Where does God his father live? Well, heaven is the dwelling place of God. So Jesus clearly didn't go to God, uh, to God in heaven when he died. And he'd also said to his disciples as well. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, the son of man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was dead. That, that's where the Lord Jesus Christ was. So he couldn't possibly have been in heaven, ascended to heaven on the day of his death and thus taken the criminal with him. So if Jesus was not in heaven uh, with his father on the day of his death, no man has ever ascended to heaven um, except the Lord Jesus Christ after this point. How could the thief possibly go there? And, and when you begin to look in this intelligent way at what's said, there's something extremely wrong with this superficial assertion by most churches that paradise is a place in heaven to which men and women go when they die. Well, let's look at the passage again and just see if we can 
uh, make a bit more sense from the context. Firstly, notice that in the passage, neither souls nor heaven are mentioned by name. Secondly, notice that the criminal didn't request uh, the opportunity of going to heaven when he died. He asked for um, effectively a place within a future event, the, the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, Jesus, so he says, uh, Jesus, remember me in future when you come into your kingdom, there's going to be the resurrection and judgment. Please remember me, allow me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I can do better than that. You've, you've, you've no idea how much you've just encouraged me in my need. I'm now going to encourage you in yours. Verily I say to you, I promise you truly today, now you will be with me in paradise. And I think that's the, very clearly the sense of what the uh, words are that were exchanged between this man and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can understand what Jesus was saying in two ways. Uh, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ was saying to this man, look, you're suffering now, but your next conscious moment after this will be with me in the paradise of the promised kingdom into which the Lord Jesus Christ would resurrect him, having already judged him worthy of life because of the faith that he just shown. Um, death carries no consciousness, as the Bible explains to us. So now is the time when we live and breathe and have opportunity to serve God and please God. But when we die, for whatever reason, the next moment uh, is the judgment. So a warning to us really to take life seriously in the service of God. Secondly, um, the, the punctuation that uh, appears in this chapter is not really right the way it's recorded. The comma um, after the words I say to you in verse 43 um, ought actually to be placed after the word today. So really it should be saying, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's no punctuation in the original texts that give the, the translators the right to adopt the doctrinal emphasis that they have. Um, indeed, um, I, I can do better than that because I, I don't want you to accuse me of tinkering with the text. Um, this, is, this is not something I expect you to be able to read from where you're sitting, but you can come and have a look at it afterwards. There is excellent grammatical evidence that the, uh, the the expression should be translated as I just said, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in the paradise. This is an extract from uh, Bullinger's uh, Critical um, Greek to English Lexicon, pages 810, 811, and it's an article um, on the word today, which those of you in the hall can see here, it's the word semeron in Greek, and what uh, Bullinger helpfully goes on to uh, say here is that the word semeron can be used in two distinct and separate, separate ways. I'll, I'll explain it to you the way he does first of all, then I'll translate it to English. So he says, where semeron, where today, immediately follows a, a verb, uh, verily to you I say today, uh, it qualifies that verb. But where semeron is separated from the verb by the word that, that doesn't appear in this text, the meaning is thrown into the next clause. And then for those of us who aren't very good with English, Bullinger helpfully sets out all of the New Testament usages for us. 
Though Bulichia, who's not a Christadelphian, insists that the proper rendering here, it's on the slide if you could read this, King James language. Truly you to, to you, I say today, comma, with me you shall be in the paradise. So end of argument. Jesus was not promising the man he would enter paradise on that specific day. He was promising on that specific day that the thief would assuredly enter the paradise at the time when Jesus came into his kingdom. So biggest problem passage in the Bible for those claiming people go to heaven when they die, dealt with comparatively simply. Now, there are only two other passages in the New Testament that mention paradise. And as we look at these briefly, you will see that they fit entirely with what's already been said, the view that uh, the paradise will be a restoration on earth of the conditions once enjoyed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they ruined it with sin. So here's the first one. It comes from uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ wrote a, a, a number of letters to the early uh, Christian churches with um, both a combination of encouragement and uh, warnings to keep the faith properly because Christianity does involve a struggle against the, uh, the sin that surrounds us in this lifetime. While our sins are forgiven by what Jesus has done, we still have to fight against temptation to do the things God wants. But marvellous things are promised to those who do overcome. And here's that promise from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. The Lord Jesus Christ says to the one who conquers, in other words, lives fighting against temptation rather than giving into it all the time. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, some Bibles say, which is in the garden of God. It gives that alternative rendering. Um, so the only reference to be found in the Bible to the tree of life is, in fact, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, which we read. And uh, that, therefore, was what was in view. So here's what's being said. Whereas in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, we're told how paradise on earth was lost through sin. Um, now, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, a vision is being given of how the paradise will be restored uh, one day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the earth and receives men and women who are faithful, uh, have faith in him uh, to eternal life. So God's reversing the problem in the beginning and putting things right for eternity. So that one's nice and simple, isn't it? Now, the last passage we're going to look at is, in fact, uh, an extremely obscure passage. We're going to turn to it, please. It's first of Corinthians, uh, sorry, second of Corinthians, chapter 12. I'd like to look at that. So we've got the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, two books. And we're looking to the uh, second of those, second of Corinthians 12. And here the Apostle Paul is writing, note the context, about visions or revelation uh, given by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verse one makes very clear um, for us. Now, I'm going to put the verses up on the screen to make life a bit easier. So Paul is talking about a vision or revelation. Here's what he says. I know a man in Christ, Christian man, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows. Very strange experience. 
And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, clearly equated with the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man um, may not utter. So in a vision or a revelation, we don't know which, a man was caught up into something described as being the third heaven, um, and there he heard things that men should not hear and should certainly not repeat. And quite clearly, as the red bits on the slide show, that third heaven is apparently equated with the paradise. Well, what are we to make of that? Well, in isolation, I, I suggest absolutely nothing at all. This is not a coherent teaching by the Apostle Paul. It's not a structured teaching. It's an obscure passage. There's no suggestion that the man had died. Indeed, most think it was an experience of the Apostle Paul in his own life. And that the emphasis anyway in this vision is not about going to be with the Lord somewhere, but about hearing these wonderful things that men are not supposed to hear or, or repeat in, in this particular world. Now, if you twist my arm and ask me what this reference to the third heaven might be about in relation to paradise, my suggestion would be that we, we looked at second of Peter 3. For time's sake, I'm not, I'm not going to spend much time on this. I'm just going to give you the pointer and you can look at it for yourself. So in this chapter, uh, second of Peter 3, um, the Apostle Peter's warning people about um, saying Jesus is not coming back, the paradise is not going to be here. There are things you should remember, he says. He talks about three great eras, three periods of time in past and future history, um, which give us some insight into what the kingdom of God is about. So here they are. So in the first um, verses, five and six, Paul talks about what we might describe as the first heaven, the heavens and earth of original creation, which were destroyed by the Genesis flood through the persistent sinfulness of men. People said, Jesus isn't coming. It's okay. It's okay. Carry on doing what you're doing. And uh, they were destroyed suddenly by, by the flood. So that was the first heaven. Then in verses 7, 9 and 12 of the chapter, he talks about what we might term the second heaven. He talks about the heavens and the earth that now are. This is the age in which we're living. And what Peter says that the heavens and earth that now are are reserved for fire in the day of the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That's, that's because of present sinfulness. That's what Jesus Christ is coming to judge. But then he goes on to talk about this final era for the heavens and earth, what he calls the third heaven, a new heaven and earth. Isaiah also talks about this. Revelation talks about this, a new heaven and earth, which is the home of righteousness. Sin's gone, no more trouble. The kingdom of God has come on earth with paradise restored. So, so that seems to me to be the only explanation in scripture we have of those otherwise obscure words which the Apostle Paul preaches. So time to sum up. What have we seen this afternoon? Well, firstly, there was such a place as paradise on the earth. It was the Garden of Eden, which Adam and Eve lost through sin. Secondly, the uh, 
first part of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was to deal with the problem of sin and the spiritual mayhem that has created for all mankind ever since. And it was by <laughs> giving his life as an atoning sacrifice uh, to take away men's sins, if we trust in that sacrifice by faith. And by his work, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ therefore grants us the opportunity of being delivered from the consequences of sin, the lost paradise for Adam and Eve, and uh, promises destruction for us unless we do something about it. And if we learn faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, true faith, when he comes back to bring the earth back to the state it should be in, like the original paradise, when he judges sin and seeks to remove from the earth all who offends, by grace we too can be offered a life forever living in paradise restored on the earth. And the point is the place of that paradise is not in the sky. Scriptures give no encouragement for that belief, but rather here on an earth, restored to the wonder and perfection of what the paradise garden of Eden once was. So there was once a place called paradise on earth and there will be again. And so the Lord God and his son have shown their immeasurable love to men and women, people like you and us, by offering us a chance to be there through faith in Jesus Christ, the plan of God, which we learn from his word. So for people like us, uh, there is such a place as paradise. It does exist, and its entrance can be assured today by everyone if we only commit ourselves to learning faith in what God and his son Jesus Christ have done for us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen